Good afternoon. Um, thank you all for joining us today for the launch of the Mosaic Economic Project uh, here at the Progressive Policy Institute. I am Crystal Swan and I'm a senior policy fellow and member of Mosaic Economic Project senior leadership team. Um, where I, a couple things. That's Kathleen Day that you're looking at right now. Um, We're gonna keep going. Between 2017 and 2018, only eight minority women were awarded PhDs in economics. Yet economics remains the top social science discipline called upon to testify before Congress and in the media. And we here at uh, the Mosaic Project felt like it was time to have some diversified voices in those spaces and we wanted to be an instrument for that. Technology, for example, impacts us all and we use it almost every day. Like right now, we are on a call via Zoom. Who could have imagined this eight months ago? And yet men hold 76% of the technology jobs and 95% of the tech workforce is white. If you look at the venture capital space, the lifeblood of the tech startup community, a report in 2018 found that only 8% of the top 100 venture capitalists were women or ventures were funded were women and from 2018 to 2019, the percentage of funding going to women-led firms actually fell. Many of these stats are, the, are post the Me Too movement when many tech titans and venture capital firms pledge well-meaning efforts to change the narrative. That's part of the reason the Mosaic Project was created. Policy can be a powerful change agent when it's placed into action and moves beyond promise. Our goal is to find, elevate, elevate, and advocate for the inclusion and engagement of experts with diverse experiences in meaningful policy conversations with a particular focus on Congress and the administration, as well as the media. We will provide program participants with the skills necessary to effectively convey their research ideas and their policy analysis to policymakers. Before we get to our speakers, there's a few things we need to do and recognize a few individuals. We have two of our founding member companies with us today, Google and S&P Global. We wanna thank you for your support. We also wanna recognize Amelia Steinbach, who I think is on as, a, as an audience member, whose op-ed drew national attention to this problem when she was an intern with Senator Hwano. Thank you for your voice. And because you'll probably be hearing from them uh, at some point in, in the, the next couple of weeks, I want to introduce our members of the Mosaic team. Lori Moskowitz, Campbell Spencer, Jason Gold, Flora Lee, and Kathleen Day. You can learn more about them from our website uh, that we will place the link in uh, the chat very shortly. Now, I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague, Kathleen Day, who will give you a brief overview of the project's curriculum and goals. Kathleen is a contributing writer at the Washington Post, where she worked full-time as a business reporter for 20 plus years. She's an author with a new book out from Yale University Press on the history of the US financial crisis. She is also a full-time lecturer at the Johns Hopkins Carey School of Business, where she teaches business communication, as well as courses in financial crisis, and corporate governance. Kathleen, you have the floor. Thank you, Crystal. Um, so how will Mosaic work? <clears throat> At the heart of this project will be a set of diverse cohorts, two to three of them a year, with each cohort having five to six women selected from a pool of applicants, sorry. The aim will be to provide the women in these cohorts with the tools they need to raise their profile with the media, with industry experts and with policymakers, especially in Congress. We'll have workshops to help them hone communication skills and to provide training, coaching, and practice in interacting with reporters, editorial editors, and congressional staffers. But it won't just be workshops. The program will have funding for research and research, of course, helps provide what is at the heart of any expert's calling card, what really gives them a calling card, and that's information. Take Elizabeth Warren. 
She was a virtual unknown in the early 2000s when reporters and Hill staffers from both sides of the aisle started to make a beeline to her door. And that's because she had detailed research on why most people file for bankruptcy. It turns out it's divorce, job loss, and sickness, not really a surprise, but she came out with data confirming that just as Congress was debating legislation to overhaul bankruptcy law and credit card law, both of which passed in 2005 and 2009 respectively. When I and scores of other reporters first encountered Warren, we contacted her because we wanted the data she had, the information, to run alongside the information that credit card and other lending industries were generating around those bills. Now, not everyone has as natural a knack as Warren does for speaking to the media and to policymakers for attracting their attention, but everyone can become better at doing that. And that's where Mosaic comes in. In addition to workshops and research money, Mosaic will offer networking in DC and New York for a practical rundown of how to break into what can seem like an impenetrable club so the women in these cohorts can learn some of the secret handshakes. Information well-packaged is essential, hence the media training and the funding for research, but networking is also key. So that's Mosaic in a nutshell. The aim is to bolster the ability of a diverse group of women to provide information and expertise more effectively and ultimately to have an impact on what uh, people in power think and how they act on what they think. And please remember, uh, as Crystal said, that while, while it's called the Mosaic Economic Project, the focus is on economics and technology. So a candidate for participation could be an economist or a tech professor at a university or someone like that at a research firm, or she might be an entrepreneur at a tech startup or someone at a venture fund with expertise, expertise on how new ideas win funding. If you're interested in, interested in being part of the first cohort or know someone who is, you can apply or tell them to apply from our website. And I suppose it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. We'll have to start this virtually, but we'll have the cohorts meeting in person as well as online once the pandemic subsides. So please apply. Thank you. And I hope there's lots of interest. And now I turn it back to you, Crystal. Thank you, Kathleen. Uh very informative. Um, it now, we're going to move to our keynote, and it now gives me great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker. Tammy Wincup is president of Protocol. Protocol is a new media company from the publisher of Politico, whose goal is to arm decision makers in tech, business, and public policy with fact-based news and analysis. Tammy, thank you for being with us, and the virtual floor is yours. Thanks so much, Crystal. Thanks to you for and Jason and others uh, for the Mosaic Project for inviting me to join you today and congrats on the launch of the Mosaic Project. The idea of really focusing on how to bring more diverse women into the folds of economic and technology is an issue that in many ways has been at the heart of my career, first in workforce development, then in tech, and now in media. And I thought that before I dive into the critical role of media in, to including more diverse women, I thought it was relevant to quickly share how I came to tech and now to media. I actually started my career in international workforce development. As a young idealist woman in business, I found myself working in South Africa during President Mandela's last years in office in the late 1990s. Our task at the time was how could you integrate South Africans into the economy who at a time had no formal education credentials under apartheid, but significant workforce experience. It was an exciting prospect and yet I left after two years deflated as we had certified less than a thousand South Africans in Soweto, mostly because we had no real way to scale the project. Even then, my mind was thinking about the important role that technology could play to actually scale important social projects like that. So with the dawn of the internet and the first dot-com bubble, I moved from Johannesburg to San Francisco to join a tech startup in then the knowledge management and application service provider space. Now we call it software as a service or SaaS tech companies to learn how I could apply technology to social issues at scale. 
Fast forward more than 20 years, I've spent the vast majority of that two decades focused on actually operating technology software companies, both in San Francisco and in DC, including the last nine years building a venture-backed education technology company called EverFi. And in those two decades was often, almost always, the only woman at the tech table. And so as many of you that are joining on the call from policy or tech itself or business, you know the facts, which Crystal pointed out many of these as well. While the percentage of women employed across all job sectors in the US has grown to 47%, the, large, the five largest tech companies on the planet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft have a workforce of about 34% women. 26% of computing related jobs are held by women, but just 3% of computing related jobs are held by African-American women, 6% by Asian women and 2% by Hispanic women. And as Crystal already shared, it's a very small fraction of women who actually lead the venture capital space. Um, and 12% of those decision makers at VC firms at funds bigger than 25 million are women but black women received from 2009 to 2017.0006% of the venture capital investment. So what does tech media have to do with all of this? What does the story that I tell about moving from economic growth and workforce development to actually running technology companies to now media, what does it have to do with the story that Mosaic Project is focused on? I would argue almost everything. A year ago, I officially left tech to start a new technology, a new tech media company, which Crystal described, and it is where protocol comes in. From the publisher of Politico, we really came to this idea of protocol because in my years in tech, what I realized is that tech is no longer just an industry. It's not a drop-down menu where you pull in that you're from tech. Tech now today is a power center with the real reach and impact of any nation's capital. And so if you believe that hypothesis, which I did and I do, it means that our intention has to be not just to cover product releases in tech or venture capital and financing, but to truly understand and tell the story of the people that make those decisions in that power center and the impact that they're having on business and society. That is the role as a startup founder that we are hoping to do at Protocol and that we are doing, I would argue, pretty successfully from our launch just nine months ago. So let's talk about the media industry in general. I'm new to it, but I come at it with a lens from tech specifically. Unfortunately, the American Society of New Editors paused their diversity survey this year. But we do have some overall industry data from Pew in 2008 and in May, the New York Times releasing its diversity study. At the New York Times, at the end of 2019, women made up 51% of staff and 49% of leaders. People of color represented 32% of staff and 21% of its leadership. And what about tech media? We'll take those numbers and shrink them even smaller. While we don't have a distinct data set, what we know from the research that we've done in creating protocol is that those numbers of those who are covering, women that are covering tech specifically, and certainly people of color are lower. As an example, just last week, I was on a call with Berkeley Journalism School sharing our open protocol positions. Despite, despite them being a stone's throw away from Silicon Valley, they shared that it was actually hard for their students to get interested in covering tech versus covering larger society issues. Our thesis at Protocol is that they're intertwined, is that tech is no longer this separate monolithic piece, but that it has to be integrated into how you look at society. So while we are in our infancy, we have started an we have started protocol with our values aligned from day one on inclusion, both in our coverage and on our team. And I'm proud that we are one of the few tech media publications that are tracking our editorial coverage on how we tell the stories of women and minorities in the tech industry. In addition, earlier this summer, we joined All Raise to commit to ensuring we have women voices in all of our events. 
So let me give you three specific examples of how I believe that tech media covers matters in the cause that Mosaic is playing. The first is around the topic in tech around media and social uh, marketing and social media. Last month, Protocol senior reporter Yanka Rockers did a story about how Netflix is reinventing its social media marketing by actually developing tech channels specific to identity groups. They launched one called Strong Black Lead, an outlet for celebrating black films and TV shows. Protocol was one of the only people to actually cover the people who created that and why they chose to create that audience segmenting. The second, and I feel strongly of this as a technologist having moved to media is about user experience. One of my favorite early protocol stories was on Tony Reid, the vice president of Amazon Alexa experience and devices. By telling her story first as a speech pathologist and now who is deciding on the user experiences for Alexa, we recognize that women in particular user experience matters a great deal to the technology industry and to the experience that we as users will have of technology. We have to tell their stories. And the last is the segment of tech media that and the stories that we need to tell around tech founders and the employee experience. I think after the killing of George Floyd and the important social justice reawakening, Protocol has done a lot of reporting on these broad statements from tech leaders about their support for the movement. But we are consistently focusing on now, six months later, on the actions that tech companies can take. So for example, Izzy Lepowski's story on the civil rights organization, Colors of Change, uh, their efforts to stop racist content from spreading online is a tech story. It is a tech media story, but it is also a power center story. And one that we were surprised and pleasantly surprised to find, found a very large audience in the tech media space. We need diverse women to see themselves in these stories, to envision themselves in these industries. So how can you, as, as participants in Mosaic and also in, in policy and tech play a role? The first is help us tell these stories. When you choose to take your breaking news or perspective to media organizations, Share the stories that are not just of the largest fang company CEOs who happen to all be men. Choose outlets that want to actually tell the stories. The second is location. Yes, we need to be hiring more women in Silicon Valley in tech, but we also need to recognize that if tech is a power center, it doesn't just reside on the coast. We at Protocol are committed to telling the tech stories from across the country, across all sub-segments of tech. The last is that while education, STEM education is key and the policy around that is key to telling the diversity and someone have, having come from education technology, I believe strongly in it. But we really need first jobs and stories about people in those first jobs, about women and people of color in those first jobs. And those include now, thanks to open source technologies, not just software engineers, but graphic designers and UX UI and marketing operators and data researchers. And we have to actually be telling the education story of how those career paths look in order to change that. And last, in my new home of tech media, my last is that if you believe in the role that tech media can play in a crowded space, I hope that you'll support media organizations that are attempting to do this work. Congratulations again on the launch of Mosaic, and I look forward to partnering with you in the future. Thanks, Crystal. Thank you, Tammy. Wonderful remarks, and um, we really appreciate you being here with us, and we look forward to working with you moving forward. I think there's a lot of great things we can do together. I get to move us now to the, to the panel discussion. You get to hear from some very wonderful professional women who are doing some amazing work in this space. Um, if you have a question, I forgot to say this, uh, please feel free to put it in the chat and we will try to get to all of your questions at the end of the session. So that's the fun part. So I'm absolutely excited uh, to hear from these women and you have their bios in your agenda as well as on our website. Our first speaker, and this is not in any particular order, but 
this is just how I'm introducing them, is Dr. Beth Ann Bovino. She is the U.S. Chief Economist at S&P Global Rating Service. The Wall Street Journal recognized Beth Ann as the most accurate forecaster of the U.S. economy in 2013. She holds a PhD in economics from Columbia, and her dissertation was entitled Essays on Race and Discrimination in Financial Markets. We also have Jewel Burke-Solomon, who is head of Google for startups in the U.S. Jewel is a successful entrepreneur and businesswoman, having successful, successfully completed an exit of her startup, ParkPick, in 2013, and is an HBCU graduate. I always have to say that, since I am one as well. Next, we also have Dr. Rhonda Von Sharp, who is founder and president of the Women's Institute for Science, Equity, and Race, a new think tank on equity, working to ensure that policy research addresses the economic, social, cultural, and political well-being of Asian, Black, Hispanic, Native American, and multicultural women. She's also the former president of the National Economics Association. Thank you all for being with us today. So let's get to the first question. As we sort of talked about earlier, I had in my remarks and Tammy uh, illuminated in her, in her wonderful keynote discussion, the lack of diverse voices in these fields of economics and technology, it, it, it's, it's a troubling um, phenomenon. But we want you to help us frame, why should we even care about it? Why should we care that there's this disparity? What do you think is the reason behind it? And what do you think we need to do to change that narrative? And we'd love to also hear about what you're also doing in your spaces individually to address these issues. So let's start with Rhonda, Dr. Sharp. Thank you, Crystal. And um, thank you, Tammy, for, for let me say one, presenting numbers that were what, what Wiser is advocating for is the disaggregation of data. So Crystal mentioned that we are an org a research think tank that focuses on Asian, Black, and I presume we should be saying Latinx, Indigenous American and multiracial women. And part of the reason we do that work is because you will often read stories or studies about women and they are not talking about me, Crystal or Jewel, right? That who they're actually talking about are white women. And so one of the things that we recognize is very important as we're talking about this diversity and inclusion, and so I'm really excited to see Mosaic doing this, is that we, we, we wanna have those voices there, but we also wanna see them disaggregated. So we really encourage people not to use the term women of color unless you've defined it first. Um, I often find that in studies, people will say, uh, they'll be talking about black and Hispanic women, and then they will say women of color, but it's not the broader definition of women, women of color. So some of the work that we are doing is one, we're partnering with Howard University, which has been awarded the American Economic Summer Training Program. Howard is the first historically black college to host the program. And they're also the only HBCU that has a PhD in economics. We are partnering with them to provide what are called inclusive peer on-site and distance mentoring, which will be three-year mentoring partnerships with the alumni of the program at Howard. So that's one of the things that we're doing that directly will influence this pipeline for economists. But in terms of why it matters to have diverse voices, and, I, and I'm gonna stress diverse voices and not huge, is what we're hoping is when we're bringing in diverse voices that we're bringing in different lived experiences. And it is the difference in the lived experiences that are going to influence policies and make sure that we, you, know, you, you increase the likelihood of having policies that address the most vulnerable. And you can't get that if everyone sitting at the table has similar lived experiences, right? Then they really don't understand what's happening in some of our more marginalized populations. Crystal said earlier, she gave the numbers for the percentage of degrees that have been awarded to women in economics. And, and this is another one where it's really important to think about disaggregating the data. And I have probably been screaming this for the past two to three years. 
I'm going to take a step back and say it is my presidential address for the National Economics Association that started this conversation around Black women in economics. I am the person who, because I was disaggregating data and shifted the conversation from what was happening at the PhD level to what was happening at the undergraduate level is why you see um, the Sadie Collective and more conversations about the experiences of Black women and um, in economics. What I am most concerned about as we're talking about tech and as we're talking about economic policy is where folks are born. And in economics, what we're finding is about 60 plus percent of the PhDs are awarded to people who are not Native Americans, and, and I should stress that even more, what, what's unclear is whether or not they're just here for college or whether or not they did their undergraduate work here. And the reason I think that is incredibly important is if you're not educated in the US, particularly at least high school or above, then a lot of the conversation that we're having right now around George Floyd, the conversations we're having about who should be included in the CARES Act, People don't understand the context of that because they don't understand the lived experience in the US. And so I am excited and think it matters because a diversity of lived experiences will give us better policies that help our most vulnerable. Thank you, thank you. Really appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Bethann. Great. Um, thank you for having me here. This is uh, just really uh, wonderful when I got the offer to speak here. I was very excited about it. And let me tell you a little bit about myself, how I was invited to, to speak at this group. Um, we'll take a step back, uh, go back in time a little bit and kind of explain. First of all, I'm an economist. I'm at S&P Global. I had um, some, of the, some of the things that struck me when, when um, actually just listening to everybody right now, something that I remembered um, back in the day uh, when I was a little girl, when you were talking about particularly, you know, how do you bring women and particularly women of color, but women into the fields of economics and technology. When I was a little girl, uh, now I don't blame my mom, but my mom told me I was about, I was in first grade and I just did really well on a math test. And I came home, I was really proud of it. And my mother said, that's great, but, boys are better than girls at math <laughs> in the end. So of course I got very angry about this and um, I decided to get my PhD in economics. Um, so, but when I, when I, when I talk about where, where we are in terms of women in, the, in, these, uh, in economics or in STEM or in other fields, and particularly then you take it to a next step, women in color, we are far, far not represented. Uh, when I think about the, uh, the question of diversity, uh, when I was in grad school, I probably made up one out of you know, 5% of the women that were in the economics team, in the economics department. And of course that meant you didn't have a voice at the table. Uh, you didn't have a seat at the table and that meant it carried over in terms of level of confidence, your concern, your questions about your own ability as you were challenged going forward. Um, Later on, when I was at S&P Global and believe, um, and Jason Gold was at the as at the company with me, one of the things that we were explore we had explored, which was an analysis on basically taking a look at um, ESG, but taking the society part of ESG and doing something on that. And what we wanted to focus uh, focus on at the time was. At the time, the labor, this is a few years ago, the labor, labor force participation rate, which is now even lower, back then it was at a 40-year low. And as an economist, that meant lower long-term potential growth for the United States. Bringing people back in the workforce meant more productivity for, for the, the economy, more income, a bigger, uh, bigger income for the people who were at, who were, um, who, who joined the workforce. And of course that meant more for their family. The, the economy would grow, the pie would get bigger. We wanted to focus and what we looked on at the time was looking at women in the workforce because we saw a decline in female participation rate. We just focused on women. We did not go into um, a breakdown of demographics for in terms of black women or Latino women. Uh, we looked at just women. What we found at the time was that if we brought women back to the workforce in general um, to levels 
that we had seen in 1990 when we were at the peak near the top of uh, the labor participation rate of the 22 uh, advanced countries, the United States would be at that time, um, as of, I guess we did it two years ago, would have been uh, $1.6 trillion bigger, or that would have meant $5,000 for each man, woman, and child. We, we analyzed this and we looked at some of the factors that were at play in terms of why this could be. Education um, is certainly a factor. You know, we made the, we made even wrote in our report, how many Alberta Einsteins or Carla Sagan's uh, have you seen in STEM or Rosie the Riveters uh, for that matter in technology and manufacturer world these days. Um, that's, but that's not all. Some of the things that we looked at were some of the obstacles that women have also making choices about what they decide to do in education, whether it would be decide to go into economics or, or the such. A big factor of that was indeed child uh, was taking care of taking time off for, for a child or other family member. But another thing that matters significantly as well, that goes into the time off penalty that women get uh, when they have to not just the first three months of being of, of not the first three months of having the child and leaving the workforce, but later on in life taking the kid to a soccer practice or, or doctors or a doctor's appointment. And that actually extends to elder care as well. Women do the, 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 the largest share of the workforce. I would take this, I would take this further and extend this for, um, for, uh, for um, black women as well. Um, indeed, what we see and when we look at uh, the female participation rate, black women uh, black women actually have a higher participation rate in the um, compared to white women. Actually, it's a bit higher, um, not much so, but but a little bit higher. But what we have seen in terms of wages, in terms of this goes to the seat at the table, having that seat at the table into into making these decisions um, for the economy and for and for businesses as well, is that we found that black women still at this point in time, when we look at wages, uh, black women have a are are get 20% less than white women in the workforce. If you do a comparison by, if you do a comparison by overall, black women, black women towards, to men, to, to black men make less than uh, the figure I have is here, uh, make a 10% less as well. So what are the reasons behind this? These are the, these are the factors and the demographics that we need to look into further on. Um, I can stop there and pass it back to you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. We always we love data. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, Jewel. Sure. And again, thank you so much for having me today. I wanted to um, continue a thought that uh, Dr. Sharp shared about the lived experience and that being so important. And in, in my world, in the technology industry, it being so important to product development. And that's the area where I see uh, the biggest opportunity for uh, diversity to really come into play is the development of the products that we use and and you know experience every single day. Um, one of my colleagues, Annie Jean Baptiste, just uh, released a book that I think speaks really well to this, which is called Building for Everyone. And the key themes in that are around making sure that you are not just considering the points of view and the experiences of people but that those people are actually a part of the development of products. Um, there are some real world examples that if, if anyone is, has ever experienced um, a, a faucet, a electronic faucet not turning on immediately. The reason if you have dark skin is because the people who tested those faucets and the, and the machine learning around that recognition um, did not have dark skin. And so that's, the, those are, just a real world example of the ways in which um, we can be led astray, not just by the technology, but by the fact that there weren't um, diverse people. And even in that example, diverse skin tones built into the testing process. So that's something that I care a lot about. And as I coach entrepreneurs, I try to get them to think about um, that it's not just a matter of who is in the C-suite in an organization, but it's also a matter of who is part of the development and testing of the products that we bring to market. So that's, that's one thing I wanted to raise. And then the other thing is just the importance of diverse entrepreneurs, diverse builders 
um, and particularly Black women, um, seeing problems that the general population may not be able to see. And one great example of this that I've seen in the past several months is, and kind of leads into, I know the conversation we'll have around policy, um, but in some ways where we all, you know, rush to figure out what would we, what would we do in this COVID environment. I saw Black women entrepreneurs make incredible strides in the businesses that they run um, to solve problems in ways that only they would have been able to see. So one example that comes to mind is an entrepreneur here in Atlanta, Jasmine Crow. Uh, she has a company called Gooder, which is food rescue. In a matter of a few days, when she realized that young students who typically rely on um, school lunch for their hot meals in any given day uh, would not be receiving that as the schools closed down, she pivoted her business to do delivery um, in partnership with Atlanta Public Schools to those students who would not otherwise be receiving hot meals during the day. So that's just one example of the ways in which I think as we think about supporting and elevating entrepreneurs and uh, people of color in the STEM fields, we are also, that, that work is gonna trickle down into um, communities where they live and work. Um, so those are just a few thoughts that I wanted to add to this particular uh, part of our dialogue. Thank you so much. Um, very important point. It's, um, I could share some experience. I used to work um, in the food industry and food access, not the industry, but as, with a nonprofit on food access. And it was always a conversation around grocery store sightings and why certain people wanted grocery stores in certain areas, but without having diverse conversations and diverse experiences at the table, it was hard to make the policy work with the implementation until we solved that problem. But once we did, it certainly opened up the door for a broader conversation. So I do appreciate your remarks. Um, let's move to question number two. Uh, and it's sort of related, you know, on everybody's mind, there are probably three major issues right now, COVID-19, obviously, uh, the economy and probably the election, but we're not getting into the election today. <laughs> we will focus on the economy. When we're looking at uh, the businesses that are closing their doors, possibly forever, there's an overwhelming number of minority and women-owned businesses, mainly uh, who are closing due to COVID, uh, mainly due to lack of access to capital. CBS News had a, a startling headline, which said basically up to 90% of the minority and women-owned owners shut were shut out of the Payment Protection Program, which was a part of the CARES Act, uh, which was designed ideally was designed to support small businesses. And looking at how those dollars were distributed, do you think it would have made a difference if there were more diverse forces at the table in constructing, in constructing that piece of legislation, uh, whether uh, it was around the legislation or maybe around the implementation of the legislation? And how do you think those voices might've helped change the outcome that we see now and what could be, this may be too much, but what uh, what needs to happen moving forward? Um, and answer any parts of those questions that you'd like. We'd love to start with um, Beth Ann, if you don't mind going first. Sure. Um, so, in turn, first, I want to I want to applaud the government for moving so quickly and getting the stimulus out there. They moved with uh, the with the Paycheck Protection Program, which I did some some research on. Uh, they it got out. It took them seven days, I think, for the first round to get out. Now, but with but with speed comes challenges. And I'll just focus on some of the issues that, uh, that I came across when I looked at the PPP analysis, when, when the data that was available. And you're, to your point, in terms of did it reach women, of, did it reach minorities, uh, small business owners, minorities, black women, women of color? Um, that's a very good question. The data that was available was very hard to, to really dissect about who actually got it. But what we did find um, on, the, on the aggregate data that we were allowed to find that um, while, while, again, while they moved quickly and they, uh, they acted decisively in getting the, 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 the money out there, what we found is that it missed um, the, it missed the targets. It had, um, what's the wrong, um, some, of, some, of the, some of the targets that they hoped to reach, for example, um, the industries that were hit hard by uh, social distancing. 
you mentioned a few. You met, you know, we're talking about talk about accommodation and food service or food services and restaurants. Uh, you can even add um, education and healthcare, for example, were hit hard by social distancing. And what we found, um, just by industry, what we found was that those industries that were much more hit by social distancing, who saw the most job loss, got the got a smaller share of the pie. Those industries with less um, less hit by social distancing got a much bigger share. Now, um, the uh, that complicates thing, Kate things. So the other thing that we noticed in the um, Paycheck Protection Program was that the size of the loans themselves. This is in the first round. Were much larger than. Uh, so to give you an example, um, I believe that uh, in terms of PPP, the first round, the size, the average size of the loan that was that was approved was about two hundred thousand. For a small business, a small business sometimes have a has a bank account that could be maybe twenty thousand dollars. So we didn't think it was making the mark um, in terms of reaching those smaller businesses, those mom and pop sh shops that were uh, that were of need. Now they improved in the second round. It got, uh, the, the size of the loans got much smaller, fifty thousand. But I think there would be a way in terms of trying to target those people and those industries. Uh, you know those industries that were much hurt, that were hurt by social distancing could have been more effective. And if they had didn't had an angle in terms of reaching out to to women uh, women owned uh, women owned small businesses or or black women who own small businesses might have been even a stronger impact in the end. Thank you, thank you, uh, Rhonda. I was expecting to hear from Jewel. Like I was like, wait. <laughs> um, so, so I'll answer the first part. I don't think that having different voices would have mattered in on the policy side. I think in terms of the way the policy was structured, that was probably solid. I think where the difference matters is in implementation, and I think this is often the case that we will see policies that are race or gender, ethnicity, and even income neutral, but it is the people on the other side who have to implement them where the problem comes in. So I remember a lot of the conversation around smaller, small businesses may not have a relationship with their bank. And if you didn't have a relationship with your bank, it was a huge hurdle in terms of getting your paperwork um, completed. And so to me, what you really wanted was people on the banking side who understood what a small business is, and that depending on the small business is going to dictate the kind of relationship that they have with you. So if we think about um, salons and barbershops, which often are you know, a pillar in black communities. So I think here where I am, there is one street not very far from my home and there are probably easily, and I, this might be exaggerating, but probably not. I would say in probably three blocks, there are easily five to six barbershops and beauty salons. So if you think about having that space closed down and not having whomever they bank with understand how they operate, the fact that when you remove them out of this space, that you're not just shutting down this barbershop or beauty salon, but you've actually removed a pillar out of the community because when their clients come in, if there is a, an, a restaurant that's owned, you're going there to get your snack while you're waiting. If there's a small um, little store, a bodega that's near, you're going there. So not having these salons and barbershops be able to open, you actually are disrupting the livelihood of whole communities. And, and I like to think, you know, what we know is co-word. So when these communities get depressed, they become ripe for revitalization, which we all know is co-word for gentrification, right? And who gets moved in and who gets moved out and who gets moved in. So for me, I don't think it would have changed the policy structure. I think this is instances where we want banks to make sure that their employees understand who are small business owners and why they may not have had a relationship with the bank to actually complete their paperwork. Thank you so much. Yeah, we had a question on that very issue, so you answered it. Um, we're gonna now, Jewel. Oh, there you are. 
Yep, sure. So I was also going to make a comment about the implementation being the real key here and the banking relationships is what we saw um, in my work. I, I work primarily with early stage entrepreneurs and many of them um, don't have a longstanding relationship with a bank just because their businesses are very new or it's at this point been quite transactional. And so the big learning for them was that um, they have to have those banking relationships in order to be uh, on the list as far as being able to navigate something like this that comes about. Uh, the other comment I wanted to make here is that I think it's very important for policymakers to work with technologists and tech companies in, for something like this, where um, it would have been great <laughs> for that, that first round if there were tighter connections to um, some of the fintech companies that could have helped in facilitation of the dollars. So those are a few things that come to mind. But you know, one thing that I will, will say is that early on, based on the relationships and conversations that I was having with entrepreneurs, it was clear that many of them uh, would not be able to access PPP for a number of different reasons. And so we did use that information to kind of formulate what we ended up doing as a response um, for this year and all the things that have happened this year. But we did launch a fund specifically for uh, Black founded companies in the US um, because we saw that they were getting hit the hardest in, in a number of different ways. And so we were, we were happy to be able to support in that way with our Google for Startups Black Founders Fund, um, direct dollars, cash awards to companies in our network. And you know the intention and the hope was that that would be helpful to them as they figure out how to survive and survive this year, but really helping them to thrive on the other side. Um, and our, our additional hope is that it's, it's catalytic to other companies coming in and filling those gaps in similar ways. So lots to be done on the implementation side, but um, to Beth Ann's point, I do think it was great that things moved quickly, um, but we next time around hopefully can be more helpful uh, bridging the gap on the tech innovation side as it relates to the imp implementation. Thank you. We have um question in the chat, but I think we're going to, we're going to, yeah. Okay. So the, here's a question and you guys will probably, you ladies, sorry, could probably figure this out a little bit better. It's, it's so, the question is really around, um, is there a problem with actual banking and who they serviced? Like they mentioned the bank, a big bank versus a community bank or in, or a city in city or rural areas. So like a bank of America versus a community banks in city versus rural. What about a lack of diversity? And inclusion in banking. Do the banking practices of these large banks have an impact? They're trying to get a fuller picture of, of, um, of how those systems interact. And anybody can answer, whoever would like to answer that question. Um, I, this is Beth Ann. I, in terms of uh, the question of let me just see the see, make sure I, I understand I get the question first clear um, clearly um, I do think that first of all um, I did want to point out Joel had mentioned it and uh, actually both did um, one of the reasons why I think that the uh, the second round of PPP had more impact smaller loans more breadth in, ter in terms of who it re reached was because they opened the type of banks that were used. It was no longer the, I think there was like 10 big banks in the first round, maybe a few more. And then it opened it up to many community banks. Maybe um, some of the act at work that um, Joel had mentioned might've uh, caused that discussion to happen, make that, make that happen. But anyway, that was one of the reasons why it was so successful. In terms of lack of diversity and inclusion, um, I don't, I can only guess, I can only guess, and maybe my colleagues on this call would have a little bit more information about that as well. Um, I would suspect that the, you know, there, it, there could be a very much a kind of a story. It's a, you know, it's an economic story. Um, I guess it's called um, assortative mating, uh, meaning what like, likes, likes, uh, likes to be around likes. Um, and that would be an example in terms of people like to hire people like them. 
whether it's a, a white man wants to hire a white man or so on, or the diversity in terms of wanting to work with uh, someone of the same um, color or same, uh, same um, gender could very well be at play, whether it's kind of implicit, not known, uh, but that could certainly be a big, big that could be one of the factors that, that, that's, that is at play. Um, I will um, stop there, but I just wanted to mention that briefly. So I'll chime in that on, on the back side of that and say, um, I think that's a really good example of the economic aspect of that. But there's also the historical context that we're forgetting. And that is historically in the US, banks have not always been kind to folks who one, didn't have lots of money and who weren't white. And my, um, my schoolmate, Benga Adjaloy, who is at the Center for American Progress, has been doing a lot of work on rural populations. And I think we tend to associate those populations with being poor. Earlier in the summer, during the summer, I was on a call with the NAACP, and this was really about folks getting PPP, and it was the churches. Like it was someone from a church who was saying, I think she was in rural Eastern North Carolina, just this conversation, the struggle in terms of the relationship with, with the bank. Right. And so I don't think that it is a single story of just diversity and inclusion within the banks, but it is also being mindful of the historical context and the ways in which banks have not always treated those who were Black, perhaps women, and didn't have money fairly. And that will also impact the ways in which you think about doing business with banks. So as Joel said earlier, it'll be very transactional, right? I'm not coming in to, to have a conversation with you because you know, we know that there can be discrimination with respect to the rates of loans, the type of loans that you're offered once someone one sees you. Now, I, I failed to say something, and, and every time I, Beth Ann says something, it reminds me to think that I'm a math major on, as an undergrad, and my, most of my training is in math and engineering. And then at the PhD level, I am interdisciplinary, econ and math. And one of the things that I always find troubling in these spaces and so, so Tammy, I would say this to you is it's not necessarily who we're speaking to, but it's the stories that we choose to tell. And I think even in this space, right, that we wanna make sure that we're not always telling the stories from a deficit base. That we don't, we wanna make sure that we're all, not always telling stories for the ways in which spaces are bad. When spaces, if that's the only story that you hear is how bad something is, Nobody wants to be a part of that. So as we're, we're thinking about creating inclusion in these spaces, as we're thinking about um, diversifying the voices, we want to also make sure that we've got voices who are having positive experiences in, in tech space. I had a great experience as a PhD student in economics. It took me years to come into spaces and talk about that because so many of my peers had bad experiences. So, so I just want to say, you know, I am, I am that tech girl who's also an econ, never was told that I was not supposed to be in the space, had always been taught by either women or Blacks. I was 26 at Stanford before I heard someone tell me that as a Black girl, I shouldn't be doing math or engineering. And I was like, y'all should have told me that a long time ago. I'm 26. I've been doing this for a minute, right? Like, I'm good in this space. And never, you know, did I ever hear that. Um, at home. So, so I just wanted, you know, to add that in to, to be mindful of the deficit-based conversations and we can't forget the history when we're talking about um, these relationships. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for sharing that. We don't often hear the, the other side or the positive stories. We're, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And we're gonna be very mindful of that at Mosaic when we're telling the stories of our participants and how they're kind of moving through our process as well. So thank you for that. Um, I think we're going to move to our final question. And this is kind of a question structured on just your personal reflections. Um, Mosaic is just getting started and we're super excited about it. And we think it really can make a positive impact. And we're wondering what your thoughts are um, and, and maybe either way, if something like this had existed for you when you entered your career, when you started your career path, do you think this would have been um, something that would have been useful to you then? Or 
not or something that's maybe useful to the next generation however you want to frame it but we want to get sort of get your take on from your personal reflection and your journey and your work and your path forward um what your thoughts on on a, a project like this being available to you so let's start with uh jewel Yes, absolutely. And I want to use the opportunity to underscore something that Rhonda just mentioned about the the need for um, more positive stories and, and not leaning so much into what we hear all the time, which unfortunately the statistics around um, women in tech and Black folks in tech and particularly Black women in tech are um, quite depressing. But I do, I really think it's important for us to elevate those people who have been able to overcome those obstacles and do incredible work. And it's why I wanted to make sure you all heard about Annie Jean-Baptiste and her work um, building for every everyone. It's why I wanted to make sure you heard about Jasmine Crow and the great work that she's doing. Um, it's why we supported 76 Black-owned businesses through our Black Founders Fund. And I'm happy to share the link so that you all can know those businesses and what they're doing. So I do think that that is critically important for us to shift the narrative um, less to what's wrong and, and more to what's right and make sure as a collective, we are standing behind and in support of um, the great folks that are doing work on the ground and why I think the work that you all are doing at Mosaic is so important. Um, and I'm excited to be now in the in the family and hopefully um, here to be able to support additionally what what all you are you're doing and I think one thing that was mentioned that I think is so critical is the storytelling piece um, and the founders and the technologists and the economists knowing how to tell the stories um, communicate with policymakers um, so that's something that I think will be really incredible and transformative in the industry um, so certainly think that if I <laughs> if this had been around you know five or six years ago when I was building my company I would have jumped at the opportunity and really happy that you all are here today to help this this current day a group to be able to tell their stories and lean into each other in a in a powerful way thank you that's it we're, we're running up on about two or three more minutes sorry ladies we ran over a little bit but uh bethan Okay, um, I'll try and keep it short. Um, in terms of my personal reflection, uh, actually, I do want to have to say something on Ron, what Rhonda said. She made a very good point. I forgot one of the things, my dissertation was on uh, two, two reports, Black-owned banks at the turn of the century, and I looked at redlining, uh, and I found analysis that showed that discrimination, and you know, basically, we saw it as statistically uh, discrimination still existed, um, and this was not too long ago in this analysis. So it, I, I'm very glad that Rhonda brought that, that point up. Um, in terms of uh, how I would see, one of the things that I, when I was in grad school, uh, I, one of the, you know, the few women in, the, in, the, at the, in my class, I felt very alone. I also, I don't know, you know how people would, I felt like a fraud. I felt like they were gonna figure it out that I shouldn't be here. Um, it took me a long time to actually get through school. I finally found one mentor, um, Dan O'Flaherty, Professor Dan O'Flaherty from Columbia University, who basically actually helped me get through. So I see this, I suspect the Mosaic Project would be something that would bolster, first would be the, the mentorship involved, the impact that it could have to help young women young women, uh, black women and Latinas get through many hurdles that they'll face, I think would be, um, I would have found it so useful. I think they will too. So let me just say, oh my gosh, Bethe, Dan is actually, I, my first job is at Barnard in Columbia and Dan and Linda Barrington actually put that together. So that's so funny. Small ah, um, we gotta talk. Yes, so, so I will say for me, um, I don't know that Mosaic would Mosaic as its mission would have changed for me coming out. I finished in 1998, and I suspect economists were were being spoken to, but I wasn't paying attention to them in the way that I pay attention to them now. So I don't know that it would have changed my path then. Um, my research thing came, you know, I didn't come to this with money. I used my own money to leverage this. And it is one of the biggest challenges that I have. I can't get the media to have a conversation with me in general. They only want to talk to me when it's stuff black. And I think Beth, I, Beth Ann and I can talk about this. Our training is as, as economists, 
that the base is all the same. You don't have to just talk to me when it's a black issue or a woman's issue, even though I wish you would talk to me when it's about Asian, black, Hispanic or, or Native American women, because that's our space. Um, so from that perspective, I think Mosaic will, will be incredibly helpful. And, 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 and Clark, I just remember her last name is asking this question about, it, it seems like there's a lot of talk and very little action. And what I'll say to her is, I think that you're you're dead on. And most of the conversations that we're having, we keep forgetting that um, it is easy to talk about it. And Tam even said this in her presentation about watching these tech companies and their statements of paying more attention to what they're doing. There is something about lip service that we're incredibly comfortable with, but holding people accountable, we're not. So that's one side, you know, having the, and I won't use the word empowered, but feeling like you've got nothing to lose by making somebody walk their talk is not where most of us are. Then I think the, the other part of, of that is without the data, people don't wanna hear you, right? They don't believe your story unless you've got data to back it up. And that's one of the things that we're really working to do is to partner with organizations who don't know where an economist is, where we can provide consulting services to help them get the data that they need that backs up the narratives of their folks. So, so Clark, you are, 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 are dead on. So much talk because we're just not willing to make people walk their talk. And that's, that's on us. That, that's something that we, we have to change. And I think we're hearing that around this presidential election, right? Making sure whoever wins next, if it happens to be Biden, to make sure that Democrats are going to be accountable in particular to the Black community. Great. Thank you so much, everyone. We are a little bit over time, but we wanted to make sure everyone knew that in the, thank you to all my speakers. You guys are, were really wonderful and made some outstanding points. And we are hopeful here at Mosaic that we're going to push, push the, uh, the button and push the narrative on the policy discussion so that we can get to some action. Inside the chat box, there are links to um, the Mosaic project as well as application. We're accepting application for new participants. So if if you know of someone or someone's in your company that you think might benefit from this training, please feel free to get them to apply. Also, we're we're starting new. So if your company is interested in maybe supporting this project as we move forward, please reach out. We'd love to make a connection there. Thank you, everyone. Um, we appreciate your time today. And unless I've forgotten something, thank you for joining us. And we're we're done. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Carol Crystal.